That music you just heard was the beginning of a percussion quartet, the first ever written by famed film composer Danny Elfman in its world premiere recording, written specifically for Third Coast Percussion. It's the first work on a new album titled Perspectives by Third Coast Percussion. It's the May 2022 release on Sadie Records. And those of you who've listened before know that every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and my guest on this podcast is Rob Dillon of Third Coast Percussion. This is our fifth podcast with members of Third Coast Percussion, but our first with Rob. So welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Before I get any further, I should note that this album, Perspectives, is made possible through grants from the Dew Foundation, that's D-E-W, as well as Bruce Altman and Bonnie McGrath, plus support from Christina Entner and Edward Malone. Sadie is a nonprofit label, and we couldn't do this without the support of people and foundations like those. So thank you so much for supporting this wonderful project. Before we get to the album itself, let's talk a little bit about Third Coast Percussion. I was looking at your bio that's on your website Mm -hmm. as well as ours and trying to pick out highlights. And there are just so many composers you've commissioned and collaborations you've done that it was actually quite a difficult task. Obviously, all the Grammys that you've been nominated for and won uh, with Sadie are are highlights. Yeah, Uh, definitely big highlights for us. Which includes three Grammy-nominated albums in last year. A Grammy winner, not too shabby. Not too shabby. Including the most recent one, Archetypes, collaboration with Clarice and Sergio Assad. We're actually recording this podcast the week that the Grammys were finally unveiled. Well, it didn't win. Archetypes was nominated for three different awards. It was nominated for quality of the performances, the compositions, and the sound. I wonder if you might pick a few highlights just among all the different composers you've worked with, collaborators, Mm -hmm. special concerts? Yes, there have been a lot of exciting moments for Third Coast Percussion in our history where things took a big step forward. One of our most important commissions, one that really set the tone for all of the collaborative projects we've done since, was a large-scale project with the Chicago-based composer Augusta Reed Thomas, an absolutely legendary composer and internationally renowned, and a real pillar of the Chicago music world. Chicago wouldn't be what it is without her. So she composed this this piece called Resounding Earth in 2012. It's a large-scale work. Scored for hundreds of bells from all over the world. It was such a collaborative process. We worked deeply with Augusta, having her into our studio for workshops many times throughout the process. So now every big subsequent project that we've done, commissioning and collaborating with folks, making it a very hands-on collaborative process, bringing composers into our studio for workshops throughout the process, is something that was very much shaped by that project with Augusta. So that was obviously one big one. Another really big one, which connects to what you were talking about with the Grammys, our first album on CD Records was our Steve Reich album. Reich's music had been an important part of our repertoire since the very beginning, but finally in 2016, we put out an album of his works. That made a big splash for us, and then it was the platform of CD, and then ultimately being nominated and winning a Grammy for that was a huge moment. And playing the broadcast. Yeah, performing on the premiere ceremony with Ravi Coltrane playing with us. In addition to being just a huge personal memory, something very meaningful to all of us in the group, that has then continued to open more and more doors for us. That was not only it was the first time that we were nominated for a Grammy, but it was the first time that any percussion ensemble group or had ever won in the chamber music category. For us, that felt like a big step for the percussion community to see 
we've always felt like we had one foot in the classical world and one foot out, especially as we were coming up as students, didn't always feel like as percussionists we were necessarily considered fully legitimate members of chamber music or solo world. And so for a percussion ensemble to win a Grammy for chamber music felt like a special and influential moment. Wonderful. The Resounding Earth was originally written for percussion quartet, but later there was a version with orchestra. Is that right? Resounding Earth, the piece is just for percussion quartet, and it's scored for hundreds of resonant metals, bells from all over the world. And then more recently, Augusta composed a piece called Sonorous Earth, which Ah. adapted some of the material and then had a lot of new material as a concerto. It's really remarkable. Augusta is such an incredible orchestrator. And it was cool to be able to work with her on instruments that are less standard, less typical for her to stretch in a new direction. But then when we got to set it in the orchestra to hear her incredible mastery of writing for more typical orchestral instruments in the mix as well is a ton of fun. It's a really powerful piece. In previous podcasts, I've heard the origin story of Third Coast Percussion from the point of view of your three colleagues. I'd love to hear it from your perspective. Great. This will be fun to compare. We can see where the discrepancies are. It'll be a Rashomon situation. We can can see how the story is different. All four of us in Third Coast Percussion are alums of Northwestern University. And that is, I think, where we all developed a real love for percussion ensemble music, for chamber music, for percussion instruments. And uh, for myself personally, I did my undergrad at Northwestern, and then I left Chicago for a couple years to do my master's at New England Conservatory in Boston. And then by the time I left NEC, I was auditioning for orchestras, and I was trying to figure out how to get my career started. I still had a really strong interest in contemporary classical music and in percussion ensemble music. I ended up moving back to Chicago to play in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. As a member of Civic, there were some opportunities to do a lot of community outreach, community engagement work with chamber music groups with other members of Civic. So four of us who were all either current or former Northwestern students, percussionists in Civic, put together a little quartet to go do this. We would go out to elementary schools in Chicago public schools and do a 45-minute presentation talking about percussion instruments and percussion ensemble music and different musical elements. We had a different presentation we would do at city colleges and got to play on some chamber music concerts around the city and in parks. And over the course of that year, we started being called the Civic Orchestra Percussion Quartet, and we decided we actually needed a real name and started calling ourselves Third Coast Percussion somewhere along that year. And then in summer of 2005, we did our first concerts that were completely independent of Civic, our own shows, taking advantage of access that people still had to facilities at Northwestern or places people had a connection that we could use a venue for free. That was really where the group officially became its own thing. And at first it was just us figuring out how do you run a percussion ensemble? How do you put on concerts and actually have people show up? And over the course of that first independent season, which would have been 2005 to 2006, we started finding venues around town and and selling tickets and putting on real shows and starting to make some plans for our future. We were fortunate to get some advice from peers in town, from other people who are further along in their careers and could tell us a bit about how to commission new music, how to run a chamber group, how to write a press release, all these things. And very gradually over the course of many years, we built the organization, the operation, the point where we all made it more and more of our primary focus. And then after eight years in 2013, We all quit all of our other jobs we were doing, and people had great careers teaching and performing. Felt like this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so we all went all in on Third Coast uh, and made it our full-time jobs and never looked back. And the commissioning actually didn't start till 2012. We actually started within the first year or so. We did very small commissions. We didn't have any money to actually commission composers in the real legitimate way, but what we did at the very beginning is we found some composers who we liked and respected, 
who we knew would not write for us yet. <laughs> and we asked them for recommendations of maybe current or former students, people who were also earlier in their careers who might be really excited to write a piece if we would commit to recording it and performing it a certain number of times. And so we had a few, maybe three or four commissions in the first year that came out that way and then very gradually built up and had you know, a number of interesting commissions in the early years that yielded some great and interesting pieces from Marcos Balter and David T. Little. But the Resounding Earth commission that we premiered in 2012 by Augusta Reed Thomas was, I think, a huge step for us in terms of really commissioning someone who was so well established as a composer in the field already. Can you name a few other prominent composers who you've commissioned since? Absolutely. Commissioning is such an important part of what we do as a percussion ensemble. Beethoven didn't write any percussion quartets, <laughs> as we like to say, and it's up to us to make the new repertoire and shape the repertoire. So uh, the composers that we've commissioned since, it's an incredible range, and we feel so fortunate to have these collaborations. Philip Glass, Tyande Braxton, Danny Elfman, Jalen, Devante Hines, Chris Cerrone, Clarice Assad, uh, obviously, and, and Sergio Assad. We have the great collaborative project we just did with them, Archetypes, which was a special album for us. But Clarice is also uh, now working on a couple other uh, pieces for us. Oh. And yeah. Wonderful. Well, I think that brings us to the new album, Perspectives. So I'd love for you to talk about how the album came about, including this Elfman world premiere. And uh, later we can talk about your collaboration with Flutronics as well. This album captures where our ensemble is at this moment and also captures the incredible range of potential that the percussion ensemble has as an expressive vehicle for lots of different music creators. And what we see as one of the most important things about an ensemble like us that we can do that. It came together from a number of different collaborations that we were excited about as independent things and we saw ultimately would fit together in a nice way on an album there were certain resonances and maybe some common vocabularies that bound one piece to another, but also that it shows such a range and variety. And maybe even more importantly, each of the pieces came through a different creative process to wind up on the album. There are four different pieces on the album and coming from different music creators. So we have this world premiere recording of the Percussion Quartet by Danny Elfman, a very special form movement piece. We have this very large-scale suite of works by Jay Lynn, this incredible producer of electronic music and composer. She's from Gary, Indiana, right down the road here. Very interesting creative process that yielded that piece. We can talk about a bit more. And then our own arrangement of Metamorphosis One by Philip Glass. We've performed and arranged a number of Philip Glass works over the year, and this one has been an important part of our repertoire recently and fits really nicely on this album. And then this very cool new three-movement piece that was co-composed by Third Coast Percussion and Flutronics, Natalie Joachim and Allison Loggins-Hall, two incredible composer-performers doing unique and special things as a duo, as well as all of their independent work that they're each doing, and it was a real joy to be able to collaborate with them to create something together. Each of the pieces is very different, but I think bound together in certain ways, and I think makes a really nice arc to the album. Appreciate that overview. So let's get into the Elfman. Now, I believe there's a Philip Glass connection to how the work came to be. Sometimes there are certain projects that you plan for years and years, and you chip away, you figure out how to get the right composer's attention, and then get them interested, and then they commit to writing a piece four years down the road, and finally it happens. This one just dropped out of the sky. It's the complete <laughs> opposite. We'd built this relationship with Philip Glass over a number of years. We commissioned him, first ever percussion quartet piece, which we premiered in 2018 and had been arranging some of his existing works before that point, including some arrangements from his Aguas de Amazonia suite, which were on our Paddle to the Sea record on CD, and had developed a nice relationship with Philip and his whole team. And Philip Glass has a festival 
that happens in Big Sur, California called the Days and Nights Festival. And he invited us to come perform on the festival in fall of 2019. And he reached out and said, I'd love for you to come play the piece that I wrote for you at the festival. And I also thought I'd have one of my friends write a piece that you could premiere at the festival as well. And we thought, okay, well, that sounds nice. Who's this friend? Can we find out a little bit more about this, maybe? He said, oh, uh, Danny, Danny Elfman. I'd like for him to write you a percussion quartet. I thought, yeah, I think that'll be just fine. (laughs) Danny agreed to do it. As he said, in his own words, if Philip Glass calls you to do something, he's going to do it. He was really wonderful. We were able to establish some nice direct line of communication with Danny throughout the process, try out instruments, meet with him a little bit. The live performance premiere was at that festival in the fall of 2019. And then there will be a couple of other live performances, late 19 and then the early 2020. And then we all know what happened after that. So we're excited now. It's, it's part of our touring repertoire. We've been able to start getting back on the road again. We're so excited for this recording to get out there because it's a really stellar and powerful piece. It's a ton of fun. I think it's got the Danny Elfman sound. If people are familiar with Danny Elfman's music from his film work, I was saying, you might say a few words about why Danny's such oh, a Oh, yeah, deal. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Danny Elfman is known primarily at this point for his work scoring films, over 100 films that he's scored, almost everything Tim Burton has done in the last few decades, and I think especially known for The Nightmare Before Christmas, where he also sang the part of Jack Skelton. Some of us might say that Danny Elfman's scores are the best thing about Tim Burton's movies. <laughs> <laughs> I love the dark sensibility of all of it. There's no denying that it is an essential part of those films. really sets the character. He also wrote the theme song for The Simpsons, so that's my entire childhood right there. And before he got into the film scoring thing, he was uh, one of the founders of the band Oingo Boingo, so some people know him from that. And in recent years, he's returned to uh, an interest in concert music, and they started dedicating more time to doing that. He wrote a, a violin concerto that's been getting played a number of times, and carving time out of his schedule on film scoring, which there's still tons and tons of demand for him, but it's really important to him to write concert works. And so he's carving out that time in his schedule to do that. So we were absolutely floored when he agreed to write a piece for us. It's a challenging piece to play, and it has that Elfman sound, but it also, you can hear influences of so many of the other things that he's interested in. You can hear a little bit of Shostakovich. You can hear a little bit of a balafone or gamelan, some other percussion instruments that come from different places around the world. And it has this mischievous attitude and the constant shifting of style and attitude throughout each of the movements, but still somehow maintains something special and remarkable about Danny's music. I'm glad you mentioned the influences. Uh, By the way, what is a balafon? A balafon is a type of xylophone that's from uh, West Africa. One of the interesting things about percussion in particular is that we can play so many different instruments, and each of those instruments has its various relatives around the world and instruments that it has evolved from or instruments with which it shares common ancestors historically. So the balafone is the West African version of what we would see as a xylophone or marimba. It's a pitch percussion instrument with a bunch of tuned wooden bars in a row, but it has a very distinctive sound that's a bit different. It's something that Danny had studied and appreciates the sound of. Even back in Oingo Boingo days, he and his bandmates constructed some balafone-esque instruments. Well, the music we heard at the top of the podcast, which was the beginning of the piece, the first moment reminds me of being of influences of the glass Aguas de Amazonia 
music on your Paddle to the Sea album. Is that a coincidence? That's a great question. Danny never explicitly said that he was emulating glass or anything in any particular part of the piece. I know that he's a big fan of Philip's music. And so I think especially in the context of being asked by Philip to write a piece for us and hearing the Aguas arrangements as well as Perpetual and the piece that Philip composed for Third Coast, I'm sure shaped his approach to it. Maybe speaks a little bit to some of the common ground of why Danny really appreciates Philip's music too. I think there's something he shared in their harmonic vocabulary a little bit and also in writing for the same instruments and writing for marimbas and vibraphones with some of these arpeggiated figures on the instruments. There's definitely some common ground there. I also thought I heard a Beatles reference, specifically Eleanor Rigby, at the start of the second movement. (laughs) That one I definitely don't know anything about. Let me see Danny. I'll ask him about that. Okay, just wondering. Well, in the notes mentions that this piece is arranged essentially like a classical symphony. So can you give a little overview of how that works? This album has works which are very different types of music creators and very different creative processes that led us to it. But in this way, Danny's piece for us is the most classical. It's set up as a four-movement piece. It follows loosely the structure of what you would expect to see in a classical symphony. The first movement is just a big, strong opening that energizes the piece. The second movement is a little bit more of a gentle, lyrical side of it, still with the mischievous Danny Elfman tone to it, but definitely, I'd say, the most gentle and lyrical of the movements. The third movement is the dance movement. It has a playful side to it and a quick-moving energy, and then a big finale at the end. I don't know if that's anything that Danny ever necessarily said to us, oh, I'm going to write you guys a percussion quartet that's shaped like a symphony. But I think it worked out that way in terms of figuring out the arc for the total piece. As he was sending us sketches of things to try out earlier in the process... Some of them were numbered like 9, 12, 11. And I think he was sketching out a lot of different ideas that he ultimately just zeroed in on the ones that he felt like were taking shape and had legs to them. So something I always really respect about a composer that's amazing when someone writes way more music than they're going to actually use in the piece and then whittles down to picking exactly what it is that is going to be most effective in the context of the total piece. Interesting. Well, in the classical symphony scheme, as you mentioned, the third moment would be the dance or the scherzo. I thought we could hear some of that. So before we do, anything specific you'd want to say about this moment? This is one where you can definitely hear the balafone influence and the Indonesian gamelan influence. There are sections of the piece where there's a lot of polyrhythmic interlocking multiple players on marimbas. For a lot of the piece, there are three of us all playing on marimbas at the same time, playing rhythms that are all slightly offset from each other and interlocking locking in this way definitely shows that influence of the balafon music. And then there are some other sections where Sean is playing a little bit of a improvised Western version of a gamelan. We have a lot of pitched metal flat bars and metal pipes create a gamelan-esque influence. And that sound has a lot of resonance to it, but a little bit of slightly twisted overtones. Throughout all of it, there's a sense of forward drive and moments of, of real lyricism in ways that are very cool. Well, let's hear that then. We'll hear a little more than halfway through the movement. So this is the third movement of the world premiere recording of Percussion Quartet by Danny Elfman, written for and played by Third Ghost Percussion on their new CD album, Perspectives.
We just heard the first part of the third movement of Danny Elfman, famed film composer's percussion quartet, a world premiere recording by Third Coast Percussion. The piece was written for them and appears on the new album Perspectives on Sadie Records. My guest on this Classical Chicago podcast is Rob Dylan of Third Coast Percussion. I guess I should name the other players in Third Coast Percussion. The full ensemble of Third Coast Percussion is Sean Connors, Peter Martin, David Skidmore, and of course, Robert Dillon, my guest. The next piece on the album is by Philip Glass. At least it started out by Philip Glass, I should say. I mentioned Glass's connection to the Elfman work, having requested the piece for you. This piece of Glass's is in a similar vein to the works that are on your 2018 Pedal to the Sea album. Is this similarity because the piece went through the same metamorphosis, to borrow the piece's title, it's Glass's <laughs> Metamorphosis number 1, as the works on Pedal to the Sea via the Brazilian group Wakachi, which, by the way, is spelled U-A-K-T-I, and Third Coast Percussion. So my understanding is it went through that same process from Philip Glass piano piece to Wakachi arrangement to TCP arrangement? Yeah, that's right, exactly. So this Wakachi album that came out was in the late 80s, was all pieces that had originated as Philip Glass uh, solo piano works and then had taken on a different version on Wakachi's instruments, arranged or reimagined on their instruments, which included some traditional instruments and some homemade instruments, things they'd constructed themselves. And some of the pieces wound up very similar, I think, to the original piano pieces, and some of them wound up very different. And then we were inspired by both versions of it, by the piano version and by the Wakachi version of those pieces. And when we were doing that Paddle of the Sea project about six years ago now, we were looking for different works that had influence of uh, or relation to water in one way or another. That was a running theme in that project. And so we'd selected a couple of specific movements that really spoke to us from the Augusta Amazonia Suite for that. But since then, we've taken interest ourselves and had some interest from some concert presenters in arranging the full suite of Augusta Amazonia pieces. And the only piece in the Augusta Amazonia project that Wakachi did that kept its original title was Metamorphosis. Everything else got renamed after various tributaries of the Amazon River system, but that one they kept as Metamorphosis. And so we have since actually made arrangements of all of those pieces, but the Metamorphosis one in particular has taken on special importance for us. It's become a central part of a couple of our big concert programs. We have a concert program called Metamorphosis that's a collaboration with some movement artists, a great organization called Movement Art Is, choreographed a number of works in that. The first Augusta Amazonia arrangements that we made as part of that Pedal to Sea project help us find our version of the Philip Glass sound and develop how to fill out the low register and using organ sound that speaks to a lot of Glass's work in the Philip Glass Ensemble and his other music helped combining that with marimbas and vibraphones. And then as we have gone on to arrange all these pieces, finding all the different instrumental colors that fit into this sound world and how each of them can paint these different pieces and different characters in different directions. And one of the things that's really wonderful about Philip's music is it's very flexible. You can always still recognize that it's Philip Glass, but it can hold up, put in a lot of different instrumental colors. And TCP's relationship with Philip Glass goes back how far? Those first Augusta Amazonia arrangements probably started that project in early 2016 and recorded it in 16 or 2017. First arrangements of Augusta Amazonia as part of the Paddle to Sea project were the first Philip Glass projects that we did. And we, at that point, had a real interest in wanting Philip to write a piece. We knew he'd never written a percussion quartet before. 
But we thought, well, we'll start arranging these pieces. We can send him these arrangements that we made ourselves to try to win him over and let him know we have a serious interest in his music. And that then led us down this way. Now we've had the, the good fortune to perform, share the bill with Philip in a couple of places, and to get to know him and work through his team and record work that he's written for us, as well as continuing to make these arrangements. And what kind of feedback did you get from him on these arrangements? Oh, I think he's really enjoyed them. He's really appreciated them. He is someone who is very open to and excited about people taking his music and finding new and different life for it. So I remember when we were premiering the percussion quartet uh, that he wrote specifically for us, we had some workshops with him and, and some rehearsals. We played the piece for him and talked about some things, and we were experimenting with trying some things differently. So he was very excited about it, but he also said, you know, I always feel like when I write a new piece, the first performance should be what I wrote. And then after that, I feel like it belongs to the performers and they can take it to wherever they want and whatever makes sense to them. I think he's really enjoyed the arrangements, appreciated them. And and now some of those arrangements are being published by Glass's music publishing company and they're out there. Other percussion ensembles are playing it. So we actually recently coached the percussion ensemble at Northwestern University, our alma mater, for their concert in February. And a group of the students were playing some of those August Amazonia arrangements that were first heard on that Paddle of the Sea project. And did you end up tweaking his percussion? quartet after the first performance? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And even actually throughout the process, he was open to trying some different instrumentation. There's a lot of percussion instruments he's very familiar with and things he's written for in the past that he had sounds in his ear. But then, of course, we have a very unique gamut of instruments. And no matter how experienced and seasoned a composer is, there is something about percussion instruments that we know that they don't. <laughs> you know, this is what we do all day, every day. And so we experimented with a couple of things and said, hey, you wrote this part for Temple Blocks. That's a very cool and interesting sound. Here's something we'd also like you to try out. We've got these wooden planks made of Purple Heart, a particular wood that has a really nice sound. Um, what would you think about maybe playing the Temple Block part on these Purple Heart planks? And we did a little side-by-side comparison for him, played the temple blocks, played the same part on the wooden planks, and he said, oh yeah, I think that's better. Let's do that. And that is, for us, the joy of going through the workshopping process and having those opportunities for collaboration. There's always going to be something that we discover, and there'll be some things the composer discovers too. I should have asked if there was a similar process with the Elfman. Mm -hmm. With the Elfman, we didn't have as many one-on-one rehearsal time with him, but I know throughout the process, he was requesting a lot of instrument samples. He was emailing us and saying, hey, I saw you guys have these tuned metal flat bar. Could you record a bunch of those and send them to me? So we would send him samples of all these pieces of metal flat bar, and he would put it into his system and work on that, composing with it for a while. That was very cool. It was a little bit less in real time, but there would be a little bit more of us recording things, sending it to him. He was very engaged with the process, had a specific vision of what he was looking for, which was great for us, and always just very curious. And then when we actually did the premiere in California back in the fall of 2019, that was one of the best parts of it is we were there a day or two early, and we had most of a day to just rehearse this piece with Danny in the room and to sit there and and to play through it and for him to give feedback and say, oh, you know, actually, I think you guys need to play it faster. (laughs) It's not energetic enough. And continue to dig into some very specific things about balance and sound colors and character and things like that. So we all learned a lot through that. Well, to get back to the glass piece theme, Metamorphosis number one, this is an arrangement of an arrangement. Was it yours entirely based on Wakachi, or did you also go back to the original solo piano piece at times? I definitely went back to the original solo piano piece, too, and then also, I think, found different third possibilities, things that maybe were our own ways of varying some of the thematic material. This is another one of these, actually, where my colleague Peter really took the lead in arranging this particular movement. I remember in one of the workshops we were doing on this, he came in with just 
way more material than wound up in the final piece. And so there were a bunch of different sections, different variations, and we read through it and we rehearsed sections. We tried things out and we said, okay, this section really seems to work really great. I love this version. This section, I'm not as clear on exactly where this is going. I'm not sure if this one's as effective. He went away from that, edited it down and figured out how to shape it and how to, to create the total arc out of it based on just trying things out. You talked about the different colors you're able to bring. I have to say, I particularly enjoyed the use of the melodica on this piece. So I thought we could hear a portion where that instrument is prominent about seven minutes into this nine and a half minute piece and listen to the end of the piece, which includes some very vigorous runs on the marimbas at the end. Anything you might want to say about this part of the piece? This is the sort of musical material that we feel like Philip Glass's vocabulary works so well on percussion instruments, on pitch percussion especially, that we can play fast, repeating figures that go up and down the instrument in a way that is athletic and exciting and fun for us and sounds really cool. And it is a very distinct Philip Glass sound with these particular harmonies. It's a long voyage. Like I said, the piece is almost 10 minutes long and it starts very calm and mellow. And by the time we get to this end section with these really fast arpeggios going up and down the instruments, all four of us on marimbas and vibraphones playing this, it's a big payoff. It's very exciting. And the audience always gets really excited when we finally finish it. Well, let's hear that then. So this is the last quarter or so of Metamorphosis Number 1 by Philip Glass as arranged by Third Coast Percussion based on the arrangement by the Brazilian group Wakachi on Third Coast's new album on CD, Perspectives.
You just heard the last portion of Metamorphosis Number no. 1 by Philip Glass as performed and arranged by Third Coast Percussion on their new album on Sadie Records, Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, by the way, and I sure hope you do, you can find this album and all of Third Coast's albums. And by the way, this is Third Coast's fifth album for Sadie Records and I believe 14th overall. That's right, yeah. You can find them on sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or really anywhere albums are sold, like Amazon.com or Archive Music or streamed, such as Spotify or Idagio or wherever you happen to like to get your music, Apple Music. We're there everywhere, and please do check out this album, Perspectives by Third Coast Percussion. We're giving you little bits now, but uh, the whole 75-minute album is really quite an experience. So the next piece is the largest work on the program, also the title track. Uh, it's by Geraldin Patton, better known as Jay Lynn. Was this piece uh, really the genesis for this project? Yeah, certainly this piece gave the theme to the project and, and helped us to understand how it all fit together. We had been fans of Jalen's music for a long time, really appreciated the very percussive sounds of it, very unique colors in the music, and also the constantly surprising rhythmic vocabulary. And she comes out of a world being an electronic music producer, rooted in a style of Chicago dance music called footwork. Mm. But she always been the sort of person who was looking for a way to create something different and new and unique and is not necessarily interested in just fitting cleanly into a box stylistically or in terms of the particular audience that she's reaching. She really is exploring and finding something new. When we reached out to her about doing a project, there was a little bit of a time of, let's see how this shapes up and what this can be. And when it finally came together, the process for creating this piece was something that we really enjoyed and loved and led us to some possibilities that we probably wouldn't reach through a more traditional commissioning process. It also shapes the theme of this album and this project and a lot of the touring program that we're doing that's connected to this album. The sense that percussion ensemble is a very flexible medium and it can give rise to interesting different kinds of music, different people telling their stories through their own perspectives, utilizing this very flexible medium of percussion. How did you get to know Jalen and her music? I think David Skidmore from Third Coast is the first one to turn the rest of us on to Jalen's music. A couple years ago, just said, hey, you guys should check out her stuff if you haven't heard it. And maybe he had first become aware of the project that Jalen had done with Holly Herndon or some other folks. She had made a name for herself starting in the electronic dance world. She talks about her aesthetic, her goal as an artist. She has a little acronym. She says it's CPU, Clean, Precise, and Unpredictable. Those are her goals. And I think that gave us a great insight when she told us that in terms of what she's looking for. She's someone who's influenced by a lot of different musical styles, everything from Stravinsky to Nina Simone. And she had branched outside of that dance music world and created music for a modern dance project. Kronos Quartet had asked her to write a piece, and she was starting to find her way into the contemporary classical world. And we knew she was very nearby, just over in, in Gary, Indiana, Northwest Indiana. And so we reached out and said, you know, would you be interested in doing something together? And we'll figure out and how do we create a piece together? And so she came to our studio a number of times and just checked out our instruments. That's an important experience for our composers we're working with, especially if they haven't written a lot of percussion music before, to come in and just see all of the instruments we have, all the different sounds, and try things out, see how the sound's made. Even for us to play live in front of a person, it's a very visual medium, percussions, to see people playing the instruments. 
I think helps them get a little bit of clarity of what it could be. And she came in with sketches of pieces that she was just composing electronically. She was just creating on her computer, utilizing of percussion-centric sounds. But we'd listen and pick out sounds we thought were interesting, maybe jam along with it a little bit, or try to find acoustic instruments that emulated the electronic sound she was making. She started sending us a bunch of separate movements. And after she sent us maybe three or four, she said, what do you guys think? How do you feel? If I'm writing more, do you want me to do something different in some of the other movements? And we placed a couple of requests. How about one movement that's really just drums without any pitched sounds? And how about one movement that's focused on just pitched sounds? Really distinct movements that each had their own character. And the process from this is something that we developed on one of our previous CD Records projects, uh, Fields, the project we did with Devante Hines, was similar to that project. What Jalen did is she created seven distinct movements for this suite called Perspective, and she composed each of them in her digital audio workstation, the same way she creates her dance music and everything else she does. And she sent it to us then to figure out, okay, how do you guys play this live? How do you actually realize this on stage with just four musicians? And we did a lot of the work then of orchestrating, figuring out which of these sounds can each of us play at one time. What are the things that are very clearly obvious? I'm going to play that part on a hi-hat. And what are the sounds that are just so different? We have to figure out what the acoustic version is or how do we make it sound a little different for live performance uh, because there is no acoustic equivalent to the electronic sound she made. So it was a very cool process and her title perspective was a homage to that process. She knew going into this that each of these movements was going to be realized in two different ways. She was going to create it using the medium that she is so fluent in and that she feels really comfortable in it as a creator. And the piece would exist in one way like that. And then she would send it to us to create it from our own perspective, using our own instruments, using our own expertise, our own understanding of the sounds that we perform on as musicians. Not a traditional classical commissioning process, but something that I think yielded something totally different and unique and very cool. And this has been such an important part of our tour now for the last couple of years and will continue to be for a long time because the pieces are really special. In the program notes to the album, they quote the composer saying, I don't want to hear my music played back to me the way I wrote it. I want to hear it in a different perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I can find parallels to that in other art forms. In theater, you have someone who writes the script and you have actors and you know that every actor is going to deliver it a bit different. And this is another level of interpretation for the performers. We're bringing even more of ourselves into the final performance maybe than we would for a piece that was already fully exactly notated and all the specifics on exactly what instruments to play when and all of that. Can you describe a Third Coast Percussion's performance history of the piece before recording and did the piece evolve over that time? In addition to just workshops that we did with Jay Lynn, where she would come to our studio and we'd be trying things out together, there was a big chunk of time set aside for the four of us to figure out what our perspective on these pieces was and to create them in this version. That Some of the movements, first version of them was pretty close to where they wound up, and some of them we had to try a few different things before we found what worked and could create an effective version of it. So by the time we actually gave a live performance of any of these movements, by that point things were pretty well settled. I would say pretty similar to what was on the album and what we perform live now. We gave a live performance of all seven movements as part of a festival put on by the Boulanger Initiative in Washington, D.C., the first or second week of March of 2020. It was one of the last concerts we did live. It was very exciting, but also one of those moments where you know something might be about to change. From that point on, we ended up performing the piece on a lot of our live stream events that we started doing after live 
performances weren't happening anymore. Including a benefit, as I recall. Yeah, exactly. Did some online fundraisers. The very first online fundraiser that we did, we featured this piece very prominently because it was one of our big, exciting projects and something we, we wanted to be able to share with the world. As we've continued to perform it and now have luckily been able to actually get out and perform it live a number of times now over the last six months or so, as more live performances have been returning, it's continued to evolve in terms of our understanding of some of the pieces and tweaking some balance things and finding places where maybe we get a little more creative. Interestingly enough, most of the movements are actually still almost identical to what we would have been playing in March of 2020 when we performed it for the first time. We're probably just a bit more confident with all of it and a bit inside the music on a new level. Well, the piece is about a half hour long and it's in seven movements. I'll read the titles real quick and then maybe ask you to give a very brief overview of the whole piece. So the titles are Paradigm, Obscure, Derivative, Fourth Perspective, Dissonance, Duality, and Embryo evocative titles and most of them not titles that you necessarily then say okay i understand exactly how that title is that movement or compositionally you see oh this one is called this and so therefore that's why this movement is like this they're evocative and set each of the movements apart but they each have a very different energy obscure and derivative are a couple of movements that are more tied to dance roots that jaylen has Whereas duality and paradigm may have a little bit more cinematic or evocative feel to them. And embryo is probably the most intense high energy one. That one we actually ended up incorporating back in some of Jalen's electronic sounds to take it over the top at the end of it. So there's some very cool electronic sounds that we could never reproduce acoustically that I think take that to a special place. But something that's cool about this piece is there's the seven movements, but there's not necessarily a prescribed order. And it's also, it's very flexible that not all seven have to necessarily be part of every live performance. And so we've used them in a few different projects and a few different concert settings using either five or six of the movements or performing them in different orders. One of our big projects we're touring a lot for uh, the future is the one called Metamorphosis, which includes a lot of this Jalen music. For that one, the seven movements are scattered throughout the show. We don't play all seven directly in a row, uh, interspersed with other pieces. Well, I'm particularly fond of the movement titled Duality. Can you explain what's going on in that one? Yeah, definitely. As Jalen was getting further and further into this collection of pieces, she asked if we had any requests of something that we didn't hear in the suite yet. We asked her if she would feel comfortable writing a movement that was much more focused specifically on the pitch percussion, on mallet percussion instruments. And Duality was written in response to that request. So it centers entirely on marimba and vibraphone, and there are a couple of finger symbols in there. It's all pitched instruments. It starts with a very simple two-note figure on the marimba, but then there is a delay effect that's used. And so you hear those same two notes played back over and over again. And likewise, that delay effect then goes to the entire piece. So everything that anyone plays is echoing back every couple of beats. For the recording, we were able to then also utilize some cool panning effects. So as it echoes back, it moves back and forth between your left and right ear. And it creates this very cool sense of broad spaciousness. It's a very warm and enveloping piece. It's maybe the last thing that people expect out of this suite. I think especially after hearing some of the other movements, which can be very high energy, very intense, in some cases dissonant with some of the pitch content or raucous with some of the drums and percussion sounds. This is a very gentle and soothing movement and actually provides a, a nice sense of resolution in some of our concert programs where people are hearing a larger suite of these pieces. It's also the longest movement in this suite, and one of the things I like is how the music is able to develop over that time, and it's got an architecture with three distinct arcs that grow and ebb, and 
what I hear as antiphonal effects, or what you describe as panning effects, yeah. uh, the, how they were created. So I thought we could hear the third of these arcs, the last third of the piece. Uh, anything you'd want to say about it before we play the excerpt? I think this one speaks for itself. It's such a calming, sweeping piece. Uh, one of the things that I love in performance is when someone comes up to us after a concert and says, oh, I never expected that you would be able to do this particular thing. People have an idea of what a percussion ensemble is and what they're coming to hear in a concert. And I love it when we can surprise them with something that has a long arc and a sweeping, enveloping, warm sound to it like this. It's always a nice balance that we can bring and shows what an ensemble like us is capable of. Well, let's hear that then. This is the final portion of the movement from Perspective by Jay Lynn on the album Perspectives by Third Coast Percussion. This movement is titled Duality, and this is an excerpt of that movement. You just heard the last portion of a movement titled Duality from a piece titled Perspective by Jay Lynn, as performed by Third Coast Percussion on their new Sadie Records album, Perspectives. I'm talking to Rob Dillon on this Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records about this wonderful new album. And now that we've heard three selections, including those antiphonal or panning effects that I mentioned in the part we just heard, this might be a good time to talk about the production and engineering of the album that can create effects like that. Can you talk a little bit about the work of producer Elaine Martone and the engineering team led 
by CD recording engineer Bill Malone, both in the sessions and in the post-production to create effects like this and those others heard throughout the album. Yeah. One of the ways that, that creating an album like this, and I think a lot of the work that Third Coast Percussion does, versus maybe more traditional classical album of recording a string quartet or an orchestra even, is that you can zoom out a little bit and ask, what do we want the results on the album to be? And there might be more than one way to get there. There might be different ways that you can incorporate in the recording process, in the post-production, to create something that's not simply a question of, here's exactly how we would play it live, and then let's just capture that, and that will be what's on the album. It was a decision that we made pretty early on in our recording history that when we were creating an album for release, our goal was not necessarily to just recreate exactly what we would do live, but think of the album as its its own work in a way. It's going to sound strikingly similar to what we do live. It's not like it's a completely different creation, but we can find some ideal scenarios that are just simply not possible live or lean into the possibilities of what happens when you can have a microphone very close to each and every instrument and capture certain unique things about the sound. There's a lot of pre-planning for us that goes into goes into everything we do, honestly, but for recording, we really go into sessions saying, okay, here's how we're going to record this movement. And maybe it's as simple as we're going to start at the beginning and we'll play to the end and then we'll go back and capture anything we didn't get or whatever. But in a lot of cases, it's we're going to go through and record this section of the piece and let's record these instruments, but leave out this one for now. And then we're gonna go back in and record that instrument separately so that we can either process it in a slightly different way or we can do something with the balance that wouldn't be feasible to do live. And so for some of these movements that have particular effects, especially where we're talking about, we're gonna utilize this delay and antiphonal effect. We have to understand ahead of time exactly how we're gonna do that and how that's gonna work so that we're recording in a way that yield the best result when it's all done. Because once it's all captured, you may or may not be able to separate voices out in the way you want. It was so spectacular working with Bill and working with Elaine throughout this process. Elaine's perspective, a lot of it was really managing the big picture of like, well, what's our flow? What all do we have to capture? One of the things that is so helpful about having someone like her in the session is keeping us on track with with our time. It's very easy. Time can disappear very quickly in the recording studio. And having someone who is managing the pace of it to make sure we're getting everything we need, uh, but also keeping the stress level down so people aren't getting anxious and we're playing our best and can really focus on the music is great. And expertise that Bill is bringing to it and Dan Nichols, who worked on this album as well, to capture each sound in its own best version and to figure out to what extent certain sounds can be near each other so people can really play chamber music and make eye contact and be playing off each other and to what extent we need people to maybe be a little more separated in the space so that we can really isolate the sounds, focus in on a particular character of one of the instruments and bring somebody to the forefront that might not even be possible to do live because people's ears can't get that close to any one of the instruments. There's a process to it, but it's fun. It opens up so many possibilities and allows us to get in the weeds, get really nitty gritty. Some of these pieces have dozens and dozens of different sounds in the piece and figuring out how to capture each one, then how to create the mix of all those instruments together. It's it's a big process. We're really grateful that we have folks who are so brilliant at it. As a producer myself, the words that come to mind as you're talking about this are isolation, overdubbing, and layering. Definitely. Yeah, so those are all techniques that were used on this. Absolutely. Again, because the pieces are, are so contrasting, some of these did not involve a lot of overdubbing, but some of them we went in knowing we're going to do three or four layers on this one. In the first layer, we'll get these instruments, and then we'll record these instruments in the second layer and these instruments in the third layer. And sometimes that's purely about the isolation, like you were saying, of being able to tweak and control each of those independently. 
you know, sometimes playing live, the logistics force some compromise. As a percussionist, if I'm playing like three different instruments simultaneously, going quickly between a bass drum and a glockenspiel and a cymbal or something, um, I have to find one mallet that's going to sound pretty good on all those instruments. But if I can record them each separately in three overdubs, I can find the perfect mallet for each of those instruments for the particular context we're in. And like I said, that opens up a lot of new possibilities. That's the magic of recording. <laughs> it is the magic of recording. Yeah, it's a blast, but it all takes time. Well, to be precise, Elaine Martone produced the glass and the Jay Lynn pieces with Bill Malone engineering along with Dan Nichols and Jonathan Lackey, and they engineered everything except the Elfman. What were the differences working with a different producer on the last piece, Colin Campbell, and with Danny Elfman himself as producer, and in that case, Dan Nichols was the sole engineer? So this album is unique for us in that we captured the album in three different distinct sessions at very different points over the course of about a year or so. There are a bunch of reasons for that, but basically we went into the studio to capture the Elfman first. By the way, all of this has taken place during pandemic time. So each moment there were different considerations and different limitations to what was possible. When we recorded the Elfman, Danny was joining us remotely via some really amazing technology, a combination of Zoom and audio movers, I believe, where the software platforms made this possible. At that point, it wasn't really feasible to travel to Chicago. He could be there sculpting it in real time. We could really follow closely to his vision. Like I said, he has a really clear sense in his ear of exactly what he wants to hear, and that's so helpful. We captured the Jalen and the Glass Metamorphosis in a separate session. For that one, it felt like it was maybe a little bit closer to a typical session for us. We'd arrived at our place of what we wanted it to sound like, and Elaine was steering the ship, helping us to make sure we had everything we needed and to question when things weren't sounding to her ear exactly what we needed. Jalen was also there for part of those sessions and could help. And then finally, when we recorded uh, the piece with Flutronics, uh, the piece called Rubik's, Colin Campbell served as the producer, which was a great new thing for Third Coast. Colin is one of our staff members. He's our production manager, has been on our team for a few years. And over the course of the pandemic, he's really taken on a big role producing media for us. Pre-pandemic, Colin's job was mostly about dealing with logistics of being a percussion quartet, which are numerous, helping us be ready to go on tour, packing and unpacking bags, getting instruments set up in our studio for rehearsals, maintenance of instruments and ordering new instruments. Very fortunate for us, he came into that role with some knowledge and experience dealing with recording. And in March of 2020, he very quickly developed some skills as a camera operator and recording engineer in a way that allowed us to do live stream concerts from our studio and then increasingly uh, over the last two years to do self-produced recordings in our studio and been able to create a lot of web content, a lot of original video and audio thanks to the expertise that Colin has developed. Because those things we've been doing in our studio have been sounding better and better and better as Colin has developed a great knack for it. We felt like it was an opportunity for him. We thought he would be ready to produce this session and help lead us through the process of recording this piece because he understands our sound so well. He understands all the instruments that we're playing. So that was a different process too. And I think through each of these, as always, it's a combination of trying to understand exactly what the creators of the music are intending and also finding the sound and the interpretation that we feel represents us as artists. And in some of these cases, there's a lot of overlap of who is the creator and who's the performer too. 
because we're so involved in orchestrating or arranging or co-composing some of these pieces. And I should note that these sessions were all at the Chicago Recording Company in downtown Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, an amazing facility and, and a legendary uh, institution for Chicago music. Absolutely. I should note that Bill Malone is also credited with all the editing and mixing, except for the Elfman, where that was done by Noah Snyder. And finally, Joe Lambert is credited with mastering. Can you explain that process and how it contributes to the final sound of the album? It all seems like magic to me, honestly, (laughs) when it happens. It's a, a bit of wizardry. Mastering is, as I understand, it's the final step usually in in creating the recording. You get in the studio, you record everything, it all gets edited and mixed together so that you have all of the best versions of everything in there and balanced in the way you want and the the sounds the way you want it to. And then the mastering defines the total sound of the album. And in this case, I think the mastering was really important for an album that, that was cohesive because each of these pieces are so different, but can be very cohesive. But I think the mastering was a part of what makes that possible. And also to make sure that it's something people can listen to doesn't just sound good on the nice set of speakers in the recording studio, but that no matter what people are listening on, it will sound balanced and clear. That's very important to us, too, because we feel like this is music that can speak to a lot of different folks who listen to music in a lot of different ways, and we want to make sure uh, the music reaches them. Well, the last work on the album, titled Rubik's, is a collaboration with the duo known as Flutronics, which consists of former eighth Blackbird flutist Natalie Joachim and her fellow performer-composer Ellison Loggins-Hull. How was it working with them, and how was this collaboration achieved? We have known Natalie in particular for quite a long time as a colleague in the Chicago music scene, uh, and have known Allison a bit and big fan of her work, as well as the work that the two of them do together as Flutronics, and we felt like there was a bit of a special kindred spirit there. Like Third Coast, they are very active performers who also compose their own music in addition to commissioning and forming other music. So for Flutronic, one of the things that we really appreciated about them as well was that they co-compose music as a duo. People tend to think of, especially in the classical music world, that the role of composer tends to be a singular one. And, you know, many of the, the projects that Third Coast does follow that model, but the four of us in Third Coast in recent years have also been co-composing music together as uh, on our Paddle to the Sea album. We were just big fans of Flutronics and wanted to do something together with Natalie and Allison. We thought maybe they would be up for composing something together with all six of us. And so we reached out with that idea and we're very grateful that they were open to that. It was really a great process. I think one of the things that can be a challenge when you're trying to collaborate so deeply with musicians who are at that caliber and whose careers are at that level, Natalie and Allison both have so many things going on as artists and educators. And it, just finding like real time to be together and actually get deep into the collaboration could be a challenging thing. And I'm grateful that we had some windows to do that. And in the summer of 2021, we had a few days we could really spend together just experimenting and trying things. People brought ideas to the table, brought in sketches, brought in musical games. It was a little bit of our starting point. We'd had a couple of just preliminary conversations over Zoom and talking about like, how do we get this creative process started? What's something that's going to spark creativity and help us to open up some possibilities? And everyone was excited about the idea of some amount of guided improvisation or setting up a game situation where there are a certain set of rules and, and people are reacting to each other in a certain way. And we came in with a lot of these different ideas and possibilities. Flutronics had a bunch of different concepts and, and things that they you know, provided as structures for us to try. And, and each of us in Third Coast brought in some concepts and some sound world and some musical material we wanted to experiment with. And we had time to try refining the ideas, try combining ideas, and just to improvise. 
We were recording these long rehearsals. We were combing through afterwards to go back and hear things and explore what we arrived at during those couple of days. In smaller groups, we paired off, and each of us as a group of two would dig into one of the movements and refine it and figure out the structure of it and to figure out how structured we ultimately wanted it to be. So we'd gone in with this idea of musical games, but we were very open to the idea that maybe the piece winds up as a game structure. There are pieces that are like that, that are game pieces that are different every time, and you just follow the rules of the game and see what comes out. But also the possibility that the musical game is a way to create material and to instigate the process to create what we're going to create and then ultimately fix it on paper in a way that is more like a traditional score, very fixed, start at the top left and play to the bottom right, and possibilities all in between that. Between the summer of 2021 and when we recorded this in January of 2022, there was a lot of refining and as a lot of the touring schedules were getting busier again, there wasn't as much time for us to be all together at the same time. So there was a lot more of recording mock-ups with each of us maybe recording our parts separately and layering it and thinking about it and, and continuing to refine all the way up until the recording session. Yeah, it was very inspiring. And I think we all learn so much when we actually can have that level of collaboration with someone. The four of us are very much in percussion land. We spend all of our time dealing with percussion instruments and i think there's a certain uh, way of thinking that you bring to it and once you get in the room with two incredible flautists or multifaceted artists who deal with electronics who do some singing and it brings in some new factors new considerations new ways of thinking about the music that we're playing and it deepens the final product and is what we hear on the album now a fixed version, or is there still games to be played? I think it's the fixed version for the album. For live performance, there will probably be some variation still. I think certain parts of it will be performed exactly as what's on the album. I think certain things will have a little bit of flexibility still. There are certain movements, like the movement called Go, is a bit more rhythmically rigid and specific. The other two movements, I think, both have a little more flexibility, even just time-wise. So there will be a little bit of improvisation in the timing, as well as maybe some specific choices people can make about the exact material they're playing when we do it live. We will be doing quite a bit of touring of this piece specifically uh, next season in the 22-23 the season. This will be one where once we're back together revisiting the piece for live performance, trying it out and playing it multiple times, some things will probably evolve for the live performance version and it may wind up being quite a bit different in some of the live performances than it is on the album. And again, there's not necessarily a fixed order that the, the movements have to be in either. I think we made a decision of what we thought sounded really great in the context of the album, but this is another one where performance it may be different depending on the flow of the show. Stand the piece is written so that in live performance it can be done by these ensembles separately as well as together? Yeah, that's the intent. Third Coast has a pretty rigorous touring schedule in, in normal times, and Natalie and Allison have an incredibly busy schedule at this point, performing and doing all the different things that they do. We went into this project knowing, realistically, we'll be able to probably organize some touring with all six of us there together, and that will be amazing. But for the piece to have additional legs, having a version of the piece that can exist with just Flutronics can play, without Third Coast having to be there live, and vice versa, will open up new possibilities. So we're still figuring out exactly how that plays out and how that works. It'll be some combination of modifying some of the material and also uh, maybe incorporating some fixed media. Fixed media, in other words, a recording of the other ensemble. Exactly, yeah, recording of the other ensemble or recording of other maybe electronic things that fit well for live performance with fewer musicians, yeah. Wonderful. Well, the movements are titled Go, Play, and Still. And the first one, which you mentioned, is short enough that I think we can hear the whole thing. So can you give people a quick roadmap of Go? 
this is one we feel like maybe plays to the strength and character of each of the ensembles. Super rhythmic, unified flute playing that you hear right at the beginning of this movement. That was really like the flutronic sound. That's something that they're really great at doing and shows the character and energy of their duo. And then for Third Coast, we could layer things with that. Some layers that are very rhythmic and continue to drive and propel what's going on, but also incorporating some lyrical layers and so hint at other parts of the piece, some of the more lyrical sections that come in the other movements. Well, let's hear that then. So this is Go. In this version, the first movement of Rubik's, a piece jointly composed by Flutronics and Third Coast Percussion on the new album Perspectives by Third Coast Percussion. And like all the pieces on this album, it is a world premiere recording. So let's go.
You just heard Go. It's a movement from a piece titled Rubik's, co-composed by Flutronics and Third Coast Percussion for Third Coast Percussion's new album on CD Records. It's a May 2022 release, by the way. And I'm here talking with Rob Dillon, who is one of four members of Third Coast Percussion. The full ensemble is Sean Connors, Robert Dillon, Peter Martin, and David Skidmore. And this is their fifth album for CD Records. Uh, it's an album of all world premieres. If you like what you've heard so far, you can check out the whole album on the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. You can purchase it there as a physical CD or on Amazon.com, of course, or Archive Music or wherever you like to buy those. Or if you like to stream your music, it'll be there on Apple Music or Spotify or the high-end audio sites as well. So however you like to consume your music, please check this album out. I think you'll really enjoy it. You gave a good overview of the album at the beginning of the podcast. Is there anything else you'd want to say now that we've heard excerpts from all four pieces, what listeners should take from the album as a whole? Yeah. The thing that's most exciting to me about this album is that not only are each of the pieces on this album created by someone whose history as a musician is a bit different, the possibilities of what can come to a concert hall stage in a traditionally classical music setting, there's so many possibilities when there's a way for all of these different musical creators to come into it and bring their own history and their own vocabulary into it. But also that part of that is the creative process. We've been talking about this, I think, throughout the podcast today. The way that each of these pieces came about is so different. One piece on the album in which Third Coast are co-composers of a piece with other musicians. There's one piece where it was an existing piece that Third Coast arranged for our instruments. There's one piece that was just composed for us in a specific way by one composer in which we didn't really have much of a hand in orchestrating arranging. And then there's the Jalen piece, which is created through this hybrid approach where there are two versions of the piece, and we serve as orchestrators for someone who's writing the piece, knowing that that's the process and that's how it's going to happen. So the flexibility of percussion, the broad variety of things that can be expressed by an ensemble like us, it's why the four of us in Third Coast feel so fortunate to be able to play in an ensemble like this at this particular moment in history. There's just so many possibilities. Well, you mentioned plans to tour the newest piece, Rubik's, in the 22-23 upcoming season. Does Third Coast have plans to tour the whole album or other parts of the album post-release? Yeah, all the repertoire that's on this album is going to be an important part of Third Coast Percussion's touring repertoire, and it's music that we're really excited to share with audiences around the country. And we've got a lot of exciting concerts coming up in, in some big places next season. The last thing to come back for us is a lot of the international touring that we had planned is starting to fall into place, so we're really excited to be able to bring a lot of these works overseas as well. I was just going to ask if uh, touring is back to normal yet, and if not, at least how close to a full schedule would you say you are? We're recording this podcast in early April. The month of April is looking very, very busy, just as busy as it would have been a couple of years ago before pandemic times. So, so far, 2022 seems like it's basically back to full steam ahead in terms of the amount of touring we're doing, at least domestically. A lot of the international touring has been a little bit harder to get back into place. Fortunately, we're starting to get a little bit more footing internationally in 2019. We had some great performances in Colombia and Hong Kong and multiple different countries in Europe, and we're very excited about continuing to build that international schedule and international presence. And there's a lot of interest still in that, but those have been the things that have been the hardest to keep on the books because they're obviously so many more complicating factors when 
it's not just about how things are going in America, but also how things are going in the country you're going to and all the economic challenges as well as pandemic-related issues in each of these places. So we're looking forward to more of that, but it's just very recently it's feeling like things are getting back to pretty close to a full touring schedule, and we're excited that it looks like 2223 is going to be probably our busiest year yet. Oh, that's great to hear. So what new projects are on the horizon for Third Coast Percussion? Yeah, we've got so many different cool commissions uh, and new projects that are in the works. Um, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, Clarice Assad, one of our collaborators on the Archetypes album, and now a great friend, so grateful that we've been able to build this relationship with Clarice through that project, is working on a concerto for Third Coast and herself to perform with orchestras. So that's something that will premiere, I think not next season, but I think that's a 23-24 premiere. We've got some other new pieces in the works from Missy Mazzoli, who was a composer in residence for the Chicago Symphony for the last couple of years. A brilliant composer has written us a new piece that will be premiering next season, as well as one of the quirkiest folks in the new music world, Mark Applebaum, a composer based at Stanford, is working on a new piece for us right now, which I'm excited about. He's got an incredible sense of humor in his works, combined with just an incredible depth and complexity and nuance that I love. Carlos Carrillo, a composer based at University of Illinois, is working on a new piece for us as part of a, a large suite of pieces that feature percussion in combination with other instruments, but he's also working on a quartet. So that's a couple of, of the big highlights coming up, as well as we're continuing to tour uh, this music by Jay Lynn, continuing to tour the Elfman and the Flutronics Project and so many other things. So it's exciting to be playing so much music and to, to be sharing it with audiences again in person. Well, I should note that Clarice Assad is a Chicago composer whose music appears on many different Sadie Records albums. And Missy Mazzoli is also a present on some of violinist Jennifer Coe's albums, including Alone Together, the album that just won the Grammy for Best Classical Solo Instrumental Album. Yeah, it's a great I'm album. Glad you're playing their music too. Finally, we like to end these podcasts with the question, what makes the Chicago music scene special? And I guess I would ask both for you personally and for Third Coast Percussion as an ensemble. Chicago is our home and we love it here and have found fertile soil, I think, for what we do. We were all in school and trying to figure out what we're going to be doing as professional musicians, people would present us with a couple of realistic options of what it means to have a career in music, especially for the type of music that we play and, and the type of musicians that we are in our training and background. Being a professional full-time percussion quartet was definitely not one of those options that people generally presented. And even a number of people, people who know a lot about how the music world works, advise us that this is not a career path. But here we are. It's been our full-time job for almost 10 years. We're busy performing and recording and doing education work and commissioning and doing all the things that we love about it and working very hard at it, but we're able to do it. We couldn't necessarily do it just anywhere. I can say definitively, we wouldn't be able to do it just anywhere. Chicago is a special place that a particular combination of an audience that is curious and dedicated funders, uh, foundations, and individuals who want to support ambitious and curiosity-inspiring art, amazing institutions like CD Records, and a lot of other great partners that we've had in Chicago that help us to connect to the larger community here and support the work that we do and be a platform for it. And it's a really special place where the arts can thrive, especially at this moment, circa 2022. There's still room for people to start their own unique thing and do something special. Obviously, Chicago is not the only city with a thriving music scene or a thriving new music scene. It's a place where it's not so 
saturated or so expensive to live that people can't set up camp and start doing it. So there's that perfect combination of opportunity and just livability, I guess, in a way. It's a world-class city with a lot of possibilities and a lot of options. We've always been so grateful to be here. So many other great musicians, great artists who are here that we've been able to learn from and collaborate with. Now that we're 17 years into being an ensemble, there are new, younger ensembles that are, are starting that we support and mentor when they ever ask for it or just give advice or perspective or share our experience. It's a special place, and so we're glad to be a hub for the Midwest and to be representing something special for the country and to be able to then take the art that we create and bring it all around the world and share it with folks everywhere. Well, the collaborative spirit of music making in Chicago is one thing we celebrate at Sadie Records and Third Coast Percussion is such a great example of that with your commissions and collaborations with composers and other ensembles, and this album is a great example of that. So I've been talking about the new Sadie Records album. It's our May 2022 release on Sadie Records, Perspectives with Third Coast Percussion, their fifth album for CD, 14th overall. My guest on this podcast has been Rob Dillon of Third Coast Percussion. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of CD Records. Thank you so much for listening.